بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله Is this lesson 70 or 71? 70. 70. Okay, alhamdulillah. Lesson 70 in the radiant light covering the life of the Holy Prophet ﷺ in the Medinan period. And we are still looking at the events that unfolded in the second year after the Hijrah to Al Madinatul Munawwara. After the Battle of Badr. The phenomena of nifaq manifested in the city of Medina. We remember that in the city of Medina, there were the Aus, the Khazraj, these two Arab tribes, in addition to the three Jewish tribes, making up five distinct groups in Medina before the arrival of the Prophet after his arrival, and as the da'wah spread, the muhajirun came. So now you have the muhajirun, the migrants. And the Aus and the Khazraj embracing Islam become a collective unto themselves known as the Ansar. So the Aus and the Khazraj are collectively the Ansar, and the muhajirun are from Mecca, but the Jewish tribes remain. Now, in the second year after the Hijrah, a new group emerges in the city of the Prophet ﷺ, and that group is known as the Munafiqun. Today's class is just about the Munafiqun. The Munafiqun appear after the Battle of Badr. The idol worshippers that remained within the city of Medina saw that the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims were victorious at Badr. Allah gave them a decisive victory. And therefore, the Prophet ﷺ and by extension Islam as a whole are going to remain in Medina. It is what it is. So with the glory of victory given by Allah Ta'ala to the Muslims in Medina, and with the crushing defeat being given by Allah Ta'ala to the, the idol worshippers of Mecca, those in Medina who were still upon the religion of Jahiliyyah, those who were mushrikun, embraced Islam. They embraced Islam. They became Muslims. Because we remember talking about those holdouts among the people. There were still some people the bulk of the Aus and the Khazraj became Muslim, but there were still holdouts within Medina, people who still remained upon the religion of their forefathers, whom we call Mushrikun, idol worshippers. But after Badr, all of those people became Muslim. They all embraced Islam. And we say Aslamu, they embraced Islam. Now for some of them, that embrace of Islam was it was inward and it was outward, which means it was a genuine embrace of Islam. For others among them, it was an embrace of Islam only, only in the outward. Inwardly, they did not embrace Islam. Inwardly, they concealed kufr. They retained their disbelief. They retained their rejection. And in addition to that, they also had resentment and animosity towards the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslim community at large. So now everyone on the surface is Muslim. Except for those three Jewish tribes, everyone from the Aus and the Khazraj is now outwardly a Muslim. The majority were Muslims between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. But among some of these people of Medina were those who became Muslim only outwardly. And we call them Munafiqun. Who was the chief of the Munafiqun? 
Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. Why is he the chief of the Munafiqun? Because he was slated to be the ruler of Yathrib before the Prophet ﷺ arrived. In fact, one narration mentions that his people were preparing and putting the jewels on the crown. They were that close to putting the crown on his head, crowning him the ruler of Medina, of Yathrib at that time, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived. So his hopes of being the ruler of Medina, of Yathrib, were completely sidelined and thwarted by the arrival of Rasulullah Imagine the jealousy. Imagine the resentment a person would have like that in his position, who saw he was this close to grasping power over his people, and then it was all dashed just with the entry of the Prophet to Medina. So he was the head of them. Now, they appeared after the battle of Badr, but between Badr and Uhud, they didn't really have overt and uh, obvious expressions of nifaq. The very overt and open expressions of nifaq would only come at the time of Uhud. But between Badr and Uhud, it's a very... short period of time so we're talking about their first appearance and what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger have said about them so we go to the seerah and one of the largest books of seerah is a book called Subulul Huda Wal Rashad the paths of guidance and uprightness by Al-Imam Al-Sadihi Al-Shami Rahimahullah this is also known as Asiratul Halabiya. Asiratul Halabiya is for any student of Sirah a must have work because it collects and organizes what was written before it and arranges it and explores every issue in great detail. It is the largest book of Sirah. And in his work, Al Imam al Sadihi says that the Munafiqun who appeared after Badr. Some of them were from the Aus. Some of them were from the Khazraj. And even some of them were from the Yehud. So that means that not only were the remaining Munafiqun, sorry, the remaining Mushrikun embracing Islam outwardly but concealing Kufr inwardly, but even some of the Yehud a minority among the group at least, they embraced Islam outwardly, also concealing kufr. So it wasn't just from the Aus and the Khazraj, according to Imam uh, As-Salihi. And at the head of this group was Abdullah ibn Ubay. Now ibn Hisham, in his seerah, he mentions that the first 100 verses of Surah Al-Baqarah were revealed all about the Munafiqun. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alif la mim, thalika al-kitabu la rayba feeh, hudan lil-muttaqeen, that is the book in which there is no doubt, a guidance for the God-fearing. Of course that is addressing us as Muslims. Right? That is, we are the ones who receive the guidance from the Qur'an. But in the opening verses of Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah mentions three groups in how they respond to guidance. So there are those who Allah guides and opens their heart and they embrace guidance truthfully. There are those who reject guidance openly. And then there's, there are those who pretend to embrace guidance. So the first 100 verses of Surah Al-Baqarah are talking about the munafiqun and uncovering their ways. So when we talk about the munafiqun, in the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam we want to do it in an organized way we can't tell every single story of every single munafiq and every event concerning the munafiqun that ever happened in the seerah in a single class so as far as I can tell there's three ways we can look at this issue of the munafiqun 
We can look at the incidents in the seerah chronologically. We can look at each incident that happened, when it happened, in chronological order. You know, in this year, this happened with this person who was from the Munafiqun. And then as we get further along in the seerah, we mention more stories, one story after the other, in chronological order. And inshallah, we're going to do that as we go through each stage in the seerah, from year two after hijrah to year three to year four, up until the very end. So that's the standard way of presenting the story or stories of the hypocrites. The second way we can present is by looking at the descriptions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives of the hypocrites within the Qur'an. Because in the Qur'an, and what I mean here by descriptions is not so much the, uh, the, the, the chief qualities of the munafiqun. What, what I mean here are the specific verses that are linked to specific hypocrites and specific incidents that happened in the seerah. So that's kind of seerah through the Qur'an, right? So you have seerah through the hadith narrations telling the stories of the hypocrites. Then you have seerah through the Qur'an where the Qur'an mentions verses that are connected to individual munafiqun. Like we have asbabun nuzul, right? The, the circumstances behind the revelation of certain verses. Those verses would be uh, verses revealed in connection with this or that munafiq. And we're going to do that insha'Allah. But there's also a third way we can look at the munafiqun and nifaq as a phenomena. And that is by engaging in an inductive reading. Now that's, that means in Arabic, inductive here means istiqara. Meaning, you go to the beginning of the Qur'an to the very end. And you go to the beginning of the seerah to the very end. You go through the vast corpus of hadith narrations and you do an inductive, comprehensive reading of all of these texts. And from that inductive reading, you extract the qualities of the munafiqun as described in those source texts. So when you read all of the verses of Quran describing hypocrites and the vast body of hadith literature describing various qualities of hypocrites, or hypocrisy. What you get are a collection of qualities that the munafiqun had and have, and these are qualities that we as Muslims have to be aware of and watch out for within ourselves. So these are the three ways we can look at it. Now, alhamdulillah, we acknowledge that we are Muslims. Alhamdulillahi ala ni'mat al-islam wa kafa biha ni'mah. Alhamdulillah alladhi hadana lihada wa ma kunna linahtadiya lawla an hadana Allah. Alhamdulillah ala ni'mat al-Islam. All praises due to Allah for the blessing of Islam, the blessing of guidance. We acknowledge that we are Muslims, alhamdulillah. However, that, mean, and that means that we testify that we, do not, we are not munafiqun. However, we have to be careful of the qualities of munafiqun and not allow them to creep up in our lives. And if we find them in ourselves, to whatever extent they are in our life, we have to discover them and root them out. So this requires us to give a bit of clarification about the meaning of nifaq and how it could apply to us. Now, first of all, what does nifaq even mean in the Arabic language? If you look at the Arabic language, you go to this root, of nun, fa, qaf, the trilateral root. That root means, its original meaning is to burrow or dig a tunnel, right? Nafiq al-jarbur, right? It's linked to the action of a desert rat. In, in English, it's called a jerboa, J-E-R-B-O-A. I don't know where they are. Maybe they're in the Midwest or Southwest United States. I don't know. But in Arabic, it's jarbur, and in English, jarbo. It's the same word, same word. So it comes from that, the, the tunnel or the burrow dug by that desert rat or whatever you call it. Now, what's interesting about this particular creature is that it doesn't just dig a tunnel 
and stay underground. It actually digs a tunnel that has two openings. It has two openings. It will cover the openings with some debris or brush. And it could come out from this one or come out from that one. You're not really sure where it's coming out from. You, you see what's going on here, right? La ilaha ula wa la ilaha ula. You don't know where they stand. The hypocrite pretends to be this, but their actions and statements and everything about them says otherwise. But if you try to pin them down, what, what do they do? They appeal to their iman, their supposed iman, their faith. Oh, I'm Muslim. So if you try to catch them over here, they go into the tunnel and come out over here. So that's the link between hypocrisy or nifaq as an Arabic word and hypocrisy. You can't really catch them out. They're two-faced, right? Two tunnels. So that's the linguistic meaning. And the ulama say that the reason why the munafiq is called the munafiq, the possessor of nifaq, is because essentially they conceal kufr. يُبْطِنُ الْكُفْرُ وَيُظْهِرُ الْإِسْلَامِ They conceal kufr and they manifest Islam. They basically pretend to be Muslim while concealing kufr. In our Islamic tradition, we have different terms for different types of people, right? There are some people who are, we could call them perhaps a category of munafiqun, uh, but they're not really munafiqun. We would call them zanadiqa, and an individual would be a zindiq. And this is the person who, they're, they're like a hypocrite, in that they conceal kufr and manifest Islam, but they're also saying things and doing things that are so clearly kufr, yet they try to hide behind being Muslim. So they are what we would call a masked disbeliever. So they're a disbeliever, inwardly and really even outwardly in many respects but they try to maintain this mask of Islam but the munafiq is playing this game where they have certain qualities and it's very obvious that they're not sincere but if you try to hold them down to a commitment they appeal to their Islam it's a weapon right they take their oaths and their vows as a kind of shield, right? So this is why their ulama say that the qasam, when you say wallahi, they say it is silahul munafiq. It is the weapon of the hypocrite. Because they're not telling the truth, but when they say wallahi, it disarms the other person. It's a shield that prevents them from being called a liar. So that's why they call it silahul munafiq. So Al-Hasan al-Basri, the, the great scholar, of the early generations, he says that uh, it is said that nifaq is incongruence between the inward and the outward. What is incongruence? And the adm al mutabaqa, right? Or the mukhalafa between the zahir and the batin in Arabic terms. It is incongruence between the inward and the outward, and it is incongruence between word and deed, right? They say one thing, but they do another. Right? It doesn't match. When you're a mu'min, what you say and what you do are congruent. There's mutabaqah. Right? That's what sidq is ultimately. Truthfulness is congruence between the inward and the outward. So he says incongruence between word and deed. Incongruence between uh, entry and exit. Madkhal wa makhraj. He says it's also said that the base of nifaq you know, the assess, the foundation, is falsehood, right? So this is a general statement from the early imams. Now, nifaq has types. It's not all one category. The ulama are careful to mention that there, is, there are broadly two types of hypocrisy. There is nifaq i'tiqadi, which is the hypocrisy of belief, the hypocrisy of uh, conviction. And then there is nifaq amali. There is the outward hypocrisy or hypocrisy in deed, in actions, what you do. So the nifaq i'tiqadi, the hypocrisy of belief, is the hypocrisy of these munafiqun described in the Quran and the hadith literature. 
those people who after Badr embraced Islam but were concealing their kufr. Because they're concealing an internal conviction uh, that, is, uh, that is kufr, this disbelief. The second category, nifaq amali, the, the nifaq of action, is the nifaq where a person does things actions that are described as qualities of munafiqun, even if that person is a Muslim. So inwardly they are a believer, they are a Muslim, but their iman is weak. Their iman is weak and they're saying and doing things that are the actions or sayings, behaviors of the pure hypocrites. Right? We have to make that distinction because when we talk about the qualities of the hypocrites and we reflect as Muslims, we're not saying that we are hypocrites of the first category, a'udhu billah, right? We're saying that if we, fi- if we find some of those qualities of nifaq in us, it's nifaq amali, meaning we have certain actions or incongruencies in our behavior or words that match or are very similar to the qualities of those who had actual bona fide nifaq i'tiqadi, even if we're still Muslims. So, and we'll get to those inshallah. As far as the stories of the munafiqun are concerned, there are many, and they stretch across the entire seerah until the very end. But we want to concern ourselves with just a couple of stories in the initial phase when those mushrikun of Medina pretended to embrace Islam. So we have the story of a couple of individuals. Ibn Hisham and others mentioned the story of Julas ibn Suwaid, Mu'atib ibn Qushayr, and Rafi' ibn Zayd, and another one named Bishr. So the story mentioned in the Sira works is that these were some of those people who became Muslim after Badr, who were concealing kufr, and the early ones. And the Muslims within their clan had called them to appear before the Prophet ﷺ to settle a dispute between them. So picture, these individuals just became Muslim, but they're munafiqun. They're in a dispute with fellow members of their clan who are sincere Muslims. Now that they're Muslims, and there's a dispute between them and other members of the clan, the Muslim clan members, that sounds strange, doesn't it? We say clan members in English, American English, you think something else. Members of the clan with a C. They called on them to go stand before the Prophet ﷺ for tahakum, to seek a judgment. Because if you're a Muslim, and now they, be, they became Muslim, and if you're a Muslim, you seek judgment with Allah and His Messenger ﷺ. Because that judgment is based on divine knowledge. It's based on wahi. You're not going to seek judgment in this and that from jahiliyyah and superstitious practices and beliefs. So these individuals become Muslim. They're, the members of their clan were in a dispute with them and told them to go to the Prophet ﷺ to settle the dispute. But they refused. Instead, they preferred to turn to the kuhan of Jahiliya, the oracles and superstitious soothsayers of Jahiliya to get a decision. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse about these individuals. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and this is a rhetorical question, أَلَمْ تَرَى إِلَى الَّذِينَ يَزْعُمُونَ أَنَّهُمْ آمَنُوا بِمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ وَمَا أُنزِلَ مِنْ قَبْلِكَ يُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يَتَحَاكَمُوا إِلَى الطَّاغُوتِ وَقَدْ أُمِرُوا أَنْ يَكْفُرُوا بِهِ وَيُرِيدُ الشَّيْطَانُ أَنْ يُضِلَّهُمْ ضَلَالًا بَعِيدًا Allah says, addressing the Prophet ﷺ, Have you not seen those who claim they believe in what has been revealed to you and what was revealed before you? يُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يَتَحَاكَمُوا إِلَى الطَّاغُوتِ They want to seek judgment in the taghut. What is the taghut? Taghut is a, it's an interesting word in Arabic. Uh, we would say here taghut means false judges, false authorities. 
Taghut itself means anything that goes beyond the boundaries. Right? The when you have a if you have a piece of wood in water and you pour the water, the wood rises, right? You would say tagha, it goes beyond. So taghut can apply to false gods, false deities, idols, false judges, false authorities. Um, some ulama say You know everything That is worshipped besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Or anyone or any person who is pleased That they are taken like that It's a taghut So they are seeking judgment in the taghut And here taghut refers to the The oracles of jahiliyyah The kuhan The soothsayers and these people Instead of seeking judgment With Allah and his messenger and they were ordered to reject these things. And shaitan only desires to lead them farther astray. So they were willingly seeking judgment in the taghut, these false judges, and Allah Ta'ala affirms their disbelief and their hypocrisy in seeking that judgment. So there are a lot of verses in the Qur'an that enjoin us as Muslims to seek judgment on Allah and His Messenger in matters of dispute that arise between us. And there are many verses of the Qur'an that forbid us from seeking judgment in false authorities. So let's say, here you are in North America. Let's say someone violates your rights. Are you allowed to go to a non-Muslim court to judge in your case because that is a false authority in the sense that those are not that's not sharia those are man-made laws the laws in any court system outside of the sharia is going to be man-made qawanin wadaiya so are what, what's the ruling of that right the ulama talk about this and they say that if a person has had their rights violated. And they are not in a place where sharia is the law of the land. And they have no recourse to get their rights except to go to an authority like that. Then they are allowed to go to get their haq from that authority because it is a haq in sharia. They're just using going to that authority to get what is rightfully theirs in sharia. That would be allowed because there's no other alternative. And if you say you can't do that, it means that anyone can violate your rights and you have no recourse whatsoever to get your rights back. Because any attempt to get your rights back would entail going to a false authority. Someone or a system that is not ruling according to the standards of sharia. Now what if a person willingly goes to a court enforcing man-made laws not to get their rights back, that were unlawfully taken as the only alternative, but instead to take something, to get something that's not even rightfully theirs in Sharia. And when they're offered the opportunity to seek judgment in the Sharia in that matter, they reject it and insist on getting their judgment from the man-made system instead. This is tahakum ila taghut. It is what it is. And this is very dangerous to one's iman. How does this happen? This happens all the time. It happens all the time in North America and elsewhere. Where a person is in a family dispute and they have the option to arbitrate, to have an authority arbitrate outside of the court system. It's completely legitimate. right? No one's taking the law into their own hands. It's about arbitration. Someone who's an expert, an authority, qualified to arbitrate in that matter according to sharia but instead of that they say no i'm going to go to the court and get this and that and it's not their haq in sharia and they and they know this this is destructive to their iman it is it is incredibly dangerous to do this and it happens a lot so that's what they were doing now in this story julas ibn suwaid Mu'atib ibn Qushayr, Rafi' ibn Zayd, and Bishr. These four individuals, Allah revealed this verse about them. Out of these four, 
one of them made tawbah. One of them actually became a sincere Muslim, alhamdulillah. That means that not all of the people who were munafiqun stayed munafiqun. Some of them actually came to faith. And the one who made tawbah was Julas ibn Suwaid. He made an honest tawbah. And we'll talk about him later in Ghazwat Tabuk. In Ghazwat Tabuk, the expedition to the north, there's a story about him. Another story that occurs early on in the seerah is the story of Nabtal ibn al-Harith. Ibn Hisham in his seerah records that the Prophet wasallam says, whoever would like to look upon shaitan, let him look at Nabtal ibn al-Harith. That's a very heavy statement. Nabi Rahmah is from his Rahmah, his mercy, that he points out that people should look at this person to get a glimpse of what shaitan looks like. So you know. So who is Nabtal ibn al-Harith? He is the infamous person who said that the Prophet sallallahu the one who cites ugliness and disbelief is not <laughs> the one saying it. He says, huwa udhun. Huwa udhun. What does that mean? A literal translation is, he is an ear. What does that mean? If you say, he is an ear. What that means here is that Nabtal ibn al-Harith is saying, that the Prophet ﷺ is gullible and he believes anything and everything told to him by the Muslims. He just, he's gullible. So if you translate huwa udhun, you could say he's an ear, but that doesn't really communicate the intended meaning. But if you translate it as he is gullible or he listens to everybody naively, that's a reasonable translation. So this individual, this wretched person, was going around saying this about the Prophet ﷺ. And Allah Ta'ala revealed a verse in the Qur'an about him. And this verse is in Surah At-Tawbah. He says, Subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَمِنْهُمُ الَّذِينَ يُؤْذُونَ النَّبِيَّ وَيَقُولُونَ هُوَ أُذُن And there are others who hurt the Prophet ﷺ by saying, هُوَ أُذُن he listens to everybody, gullible, like this. Huwa udhun. Qul udhunu khayrin lakum yu'minu billahi wa yu'minu lilmu'mineen wa rahmatun lilladheena amanu minkum walladheena yu'dhuna rasoolallahi lahum adabun adeem. Say, he listens to what is best for you. So here Allah Ta'ala mentions the word but in the positive meaning. So udhun is ambiguous. You could mean gullible, but you could change that meaning to udhun, meaning he listens to what is best for the ummah. Right? Sami'na wa ta'na. He listens to what is best for you. He believes in Allah. Wa yu'minu lil mu'minin. And he has faith in the believers. And is a mercy for those who believe among you. And then Allah concludes the verse by saying, those who hurt the Messenger of Allah suffer a painful punishment. They will suffer a painful punishment. This is about Nabtal ibn al-Harith, who was going around saying this. So in that early stage, the Munafiqun would come to the masjid and they would sit and listen to the Muslims talk and mock them. So they would, they would form their own little crowds, their own little clique. And you sometimes see this in masajid, right? You know, especially in larger masajid, you sometimes have cliques and you have people who are whispering and talking and creating gossip about this one and that one. And, right? Even these are Muslims. Muslims do this. But these are munafiqun doing this. They're coming to the masjid to listen to the Muslims talk. They're eavesdropping. They're just sitting around here while they're over there talking and they're mocking them, especially when they leave the masjid and they go to their own gatherings they go and make fun of the Muslims, they make fun of the Prophet ﷺ and mock them. Now, in the early seerah, it mentions that as they would do this, one day, some of the munafiqun came into the Masjid of Medina and the Prophet 
saw them in their own little crowd away from the rest of the believers and they were talking among themselves with you know in hushed tones and whispering and this and that you know with furtive glances looking over and the hadith mentions that when the prophet وسلم, saw them doing that off to the side he told them to be re- he instructed that they be removed from the masjid so yes rasulullah did at times kick people out of the masjid and if anyone deserves to be kicked out of the masjid it's munafiqun so and there's stories about different events where people or small groups were kicked out of the masjid because of their behavior because uh, they were doing it in this way you know we call it plausible deniability you know what that is right a you know in a person is egging someone on or they're behaving in such a way they're intentionally being offensive they're intentionally trying to cause fitna but they're doing it in such a subtle way that if you were to push back they would use plausible deniability and say no no you're you're taking it the wrong way you know i was just joking or why are you why are you so serious that how could you accuse me of that they're ga- you know we say gaslighting right people use that term today so the munafiqun were masters of gaslighting the believers. Well, how could you accuse me? I'm a Muslim. How dare you? That's how they were. So those are two stories in the early period, or three stories, of the early period before the munafiqun began to become more overt in their expressions of hypocrisy. Now, we, we mentioned the three ways to know them. Uh, the stories in chronological order as they're presented in the seerah. We've mentioned two here. The other way is to look at the verses in the Qur'an that were revealed about specific individual munafiqun or groups and what happened. The other way is to do an inductive reading, which is not to look at individual verses or individual hadith, but to do an inductive reading and present a collection of qualities and traits shared by the munafiqun that we as Muslims should be wary of and seek to banish from our lives. This is important and there's value to it. I, I remember many years ago, uh, because you know the ulama have written about this, and I remember many, many years ago, uh, I was in a conversation with someone and I expressed to them that these qualities should be studied. And we should know each of these qualities, what they are, the background behind them and how we can avoid them. And this person responded by saying, no, we should just focus on the positive qualities because if you focus on the positive qualities, you automatically get rid of the negative qualities. So they didn't want to look at these negative qualities because it's not going to be a, a fun and lighthearted, enjoyable discussion. It becomes a very sad or heavy discussion. But our reply to that would be the position of Sayyidina Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman. Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman, al-Sahabi and Jalil, the noble companion, he had this way about him. He used to say, كان الناس يسألون النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم عن الخير وكنت أسأله عن الشر مخافة أن يدركني. The people used to ask the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم about the good, but I would ask about the evil for fear of it impacting me, for fear of it catching me or you know, falling into it. So that's why out of all the companions who received the names of the munafiqun, it was Sayyidina Hudayfa radiallahu anhu. So we can take the Hudayfan, the Hudayfan approach in seeking to know these broad qualities in order to be aware and to avoid them. So what are these qualities? Depending on how you add them up, you're going to get either between 40... 30, 20, 15. It all depends on how you categorize these negative qualities. I'm listing out 19 of them. 
and but you can break them down further. So through an inductive reading of the Quran and the Sunnah, when we look at the verses that describe the qualities of the Munafiqun and the hadith that describe the qualities of the Munafiqun and the hadith which say whoever does this has a, a single quality, a khasla, a single quality of hypocrisy. When you put all those together, you get this list. So number one at the top of the list is falsehood. Falsehood. So false oaths. Well, saying wallahi while telling a lie. False testimony. False excuses. Breaking trusts. Breaking promises. Making up stories about other people. You know, those are all aspects of falsehood. All of those fall under that category of falsehood, number one. The second quality is very similar. You could group it together. Deceiving people, trickery, fraudulent behavior, conniving and plotting, you know, this sneaky stuff. That's number two. Betraying trust. Exposing the secrets that are confided in one. If sir, you know, a person tells you a secret and they confide in you, don't tell anyone, but you go and tell this one and that one and you spread people's business. That is the quality of nifaq. Number four, neglecting the salat. So neglecting the salat takes on many forms. There is tarku salat, just leaving it all together. There's leaving it sometimes and doing it sometimes. There's delaying the salat past its proper time. Where a person, for instance, they, they, their practice is they pray Dhuhr, Asr, and Maghrib uh, at Isha time after they get home from work. You know, stuff like that. People, they make the excuse that they can't pray at work. So they just leave all the prayers until they get home. You know, that's an example. Uh, or rushing through the prayer just to get it over with. Considering the prayer to be a burden, finding it heavy, that is the quality of nifaq, to find it heavy. Uh, delaying it to the end of the day. Likewise, failing to attend Jumu'ah three times in succession, three times in a row, without a valid shari excuse. That's mentioned in the hadith. So some people miss Jumu'ah once because something comes up. And maybe it's excused, Maybe it's not. But then they come and they miss it a second time, right after that. And then a third time, and then a fourth time. It becomes the consistent habitual pattern to neglect Jumu'ah without a valid shari excuse. For men, of course, who are resident in that, in that city. That is a quality of nifaq. And number five, making little dhikr of Allah. Forgetting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Likewise, neglecting to ever invoke salawat upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That is the person who is also bakhil. They're described as being miserly. Number six, showing off in ibadah. You know the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where he says that the heaviest prayer on the munafiq is, there are two prayers, which ones are they? It's, it's Fajr and Isha. Why Fajr and Isha? Why not Dhuhr, Asr, and Maghrib? Right. And it's intuitive, you know. Uh, I, I don't think I fully uh, appreciated this until I was uh, in a village in Pakistan in many, many years ago. And in that small village, they had a small little masjid and they had little lanterns inside. That was it. And you, you, could, you could barely see. And when you get inside at Fajr or at Isha, you can barely see the person in front of you. So those prayers are heavy on them because it disrupts their sleep. Because, you know, the munafiqun back then, like everyone else, their bodies were attuned to their circadian rhythms. So when it gets dark, you're tired. Right? You want to sleep after Maghrib. So they don't want to come to Isha. Because prayer itself is hard, is heavy on them because it's not real, it's not sincere for them. But they got to come. But they can avoid Fajr and they can avoid Isha because it's going to be dark. 
There may be, there may be some lanterns, qanadil, but no one's going to really see them. No one's going to miss them. Their absence will not be ubiquitous. So that's uh, showing off uh, or only coming to the masjid when they're visible. Uh, number seven, ridicule is a quality of the munafiqun. Taunting people, joking at others' expense, making fun of religious people due to their religious commitment. Right? So we have to make a distinction here. It's one thing if a person makes fun of a quote-unquote religious person who looks the look, but they themselves are being hypocritical and presenting themselves as a religious person, but cheating others in business or, or doing horrible things. People may belittle them and make fun of them, not because they're religious, but because they're being hypocritical themselves in the claim to be religious while they violate the rights of others. We're talking about people who just make fun of religious people because they are religious, right? That is the person who makes fun of the beard, makes fun of the hijab, who makes fun of any religious observance, not hypocritical displays of religious practice, but the actual practice itself. That's uh, hypocrisy. Making fun of the Qur'an, making fun of the sunnah, making fun of anything connected to the deen. And we see this later at Tabuk, the story in connection with this istihza, where they made fun of the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba. And then when they were called out, they, says, they said, kunna wa We were just playing around, we were just joking. And Allah revealed the verse, say, was it in Allah and His Messenger you were... Uh, in jesting and joking about don't make any excuses for yourself you have disbelieved after expressing your faith so that's a quality of nifaq so comedy is can be dangerous territory when you start to bring religion into it and you have people in north america who are outwardly muslim but use their islam as the butt of their jokes people making fun of dua People making fun of the different aspects of uh, salat, for instance, is very dangerous. Uh, number eight, Allah describes the believers as those who ya'muruna bil ma'ruf wa yanhauna al munkar. The believing men and women, Allah describes them as those who enjoin the good and forbid the evil. And in the Quran, Allah describes the munafiqun wal munafiqat, the male and female hypocrites. There were women among them too. What do they do? It's a complete inversion of what the believers are instructed to do. يَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمُنْكَرِ وَيَنْهَوْنَ عَلِ الْمَعْرُوفِ They enjoin what is evil and they forbid what is good. So they're telling people, go out there and do this and do that. Advocate for this degeneracy. Support this fahisha. Ally with this group and ally with that group. We're with you. But when it comes to actual morality, ma'roof, they want to forbid that and prevent that. So it's the inversion of the quality of believers. Likewise, and related to this, is promoting immodesty and indecency. And there's a hadith in connection with this. Number 10, behaving shamelessly, committing sins fearlessly when alone. Right, this is the person who... Uh, if they do it, they have a share of equality of nifaq where they won't do those things publicly, but they're very bold and blatant in committing kaba'ir when they're behind closed doors. In a shameless way, but they only do it when they're behind closed doors. Because the only reason they avoid it publicly is because they don't want to be called out on it. That's a quality of nifaq as well. To praise people to their faces, number 11, and find fault with them behind their back. This is the person who, you know, they engage in this mujamala, you know. Oh, you know, mashallah, nice, yeah, you know, you know. And then when they're away from that person, they have, lot, they have lots of bad things to say. It doesn't mean that if you don't like someone, you should just call them out into their face. You know, I think you're a horrible person, you're disgusting, you're a pig. Because that's what you would say behind closed doors. You should have some diplomacy in how you deal with people. But the idea here is to have congruency, right? 
ما بالو أقوامن You know, what's the matter with people who do this and that? The Prophet ﷺ would say that privately and publicly. Right? That's what quality. Um, number 12. To spread rumors that cause suspicion, that cause fitna and create rifts within the community. That is a quality of munafiqun. Number 13, to be happy with people's misfortunes and to be saddened with their good fortune. Allah mentions this in more than one place in the Quran, right? That if something good happens to you, tasu'hum, right? It makes them feel bad. They feel bad that you received a good fortune. Something good happened to you in your life. But if something bad happens to you, accident, problem, this, that, disaster, they get happy. And you know people like that in life, right? There are people like this. If they see a good quality from you, they will hide it. They will conceal it. They won't speak a word about any good quality you have, even if they see it before their eyes. But if they see a bad quality, or they hear about a bad quality of you, they spread it across the horizon. The believer should be the other way, ideally. That if you see a good, you acknowledge it. You share it. You don't hide the fada'il of people and pretend they don't have virtues. And if something bad happens, they do something bad, they have a bad quality, you conceal it. If it's something concealable, if it just pertains to them, if it's something that has an alternative interpretation, a valid interpretation, you interpret it, you make excuses for them. And if it is something that affects others, then you deal with it in the manner and measure it needs to be dealt with publicly. But the idea here is munafiqun are happy when bad things happen to believers and they are sad when they are happy when bad things happen and they're sad when good things happen. Uh, number 14, to be cowardly. That's the quality of the hypocrites. That's why they're always making excuses to not go in jihad. Number 15, to spread fitna, which is related to you know, spreading rumors. But spreading fitna means more than just rumors. It can be you know, creating situations that cause division as well. Uh, number 16, to seek praise for what one has not done. That's in the Quran. Allah mentions this. Right? Yuhibbuna an yuhmadu bima lam yaf'alu. They love to be praised for what they didn't do. They like to take credit for something that they didn't even do. It's a weird thing to think about it. Like, why are you happy? <laughs> you didn't do it. But that's them. Number 17, to pay extreme attention to one's outward appearance while neglecting the heart. Number 18, to deny the promises of Allah and His Messenger. Right, to deny those promises from Allah or from His Messenger وسلم, is a quality of hypocrisy. Right? إِذْ يَقُولُ الْمُنَافِقُونَ وَالَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ مَا وَعَدَنَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ إِلَّا غُرُورًا They say that Allah and His Messenger did not promise us anything except delusion. That's the quality of these people. And lastly, to dislike jihad fi sabirillah and not have an inner discourse about it. And this is in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, recorded by Imam al-Bukhari. مَنْ لَمْ يَغْزُوا وَلَمْ يُحَدِّثْ نَفْسَهُ بِالْغَزْوِ مَاتَ عَلَى شُعْبَةٍ مِنْ نِفَاقِ أَوْ كَمَا قَالَ عَلَيْهِ الصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ Whoever does not partake in the ghazwa or have an inner discourse about it, meaning that's a virtuous thing. And if Allah ever put me in that situation, I would be happy to obey Allah in fulfilling that obligation because it's praiseworthy in those conditions. I don't need to mention disclaimers here. You all get what I'm saying. That internal discourse has to be there. If a person doesn't have that, they have a quality of hypocrisy. But the original munafiqun, not only did they not have that internal discourse, 
They disliked it. They hated it, and they sought to avoid it at all costs. Because why would they spend of their wealth and put their lives at risk for something they not only didn't believe in, but they also had animosity towards? Why? Why would you? Would you go spend your money? Like think of, you know, think of something that you really hate. Think of an organization. Uh, an ideology you really, really hate. Would you like to spend a lot of your money to support them in a public effort where they're going to protest in the streets? And would you like to join them and take up arms with them and risk your life for that cause which you hate? Like, we wouldn't want to do that. If they don't believe in La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and they have animosity towards Rasulullah Islam and the believers, why would they want to spend their money? Why would they want to go out? So they don't have that internal discord. The believers do though, because it's real for them. So we're, we're going to see all of these qualities. All, these are 19. You could expand this out to 40. You're going to see all of these qualities appear in multiple incidents throughout the seerah. So moving on, because we only have a couple more sessions before Ramadan, where we take a pause. Next week, inshallah, we're going to talk about a very critical moment in the seerah in the pre-Uhud period. And that is the expulsion of one of those three Jewish tribes, the tribe of Bani Qaynuqa, and their expulsion from Medina, which is just a month after Badr. We'll talk about that next week, inshallah ta'ala. Wallahu wa a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. What are your questions? Are we going to come back to a munafiq or should I ask, ask, ask the question? If it's about a particular munafiq or a specific story, wait. If, it, if it's general, yeah, we'll... Let's say you, I mean, the thing is, obviously, you, we don't know who is the munafiq right now in this day and age. The masjid comes in and out. But let's say there is knowledge that this person is a munafiq. What is the ruling on salatu janazah? Mm. Well, it is commonly said that there were no munafiqun in, in Mecca because the conditions were so harsh and the Muslims were so persecuted that no one would pretend to be a Muslim. Anyone who took shahada would be doing so out of purity and sincerity. And the munafiqun only appeared when Islam was ascendant when the Prophet ﷺ had political authority and force in addition to his spiritual authority. The question is, after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, would munafiqun remain? The answer is yes. The next question is, if they remain, well what happens when Islam is no longer ascendant? You don't have a khilafah, we don't have a khilafah, we have nation states. Islam is not exactly uh, on the rise in a political sense. So why would someone pretend to be a Muslim? Or would there be munafiqun in this day and age when Islam is not a politically ascendant force like it was back then? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. It's just it takes on different forms and it may not be directly connected to the political ascendancy of the Muslims. But we don't have access to the unseen to know if this one is a hypocrite or not. We can only judge by the outward. So when it, when it concerns janazah prayers and whether you pray over a person or not, it can only be based on the outward. In, in a Muslim country, where it's a, the vast majority of people are Muslims, the individual Muslim who dies... If you don't know who they are, they are mastur al-hal. Their condition is, is unknown. But the presumption is that they are a Muslim. And so you pray janazah over them. You don't assume the other way. that You don't assume that they're disbelievers until proven otherwise. You don't assume they're hypocrites until proven otherwise. You assume they are Muslims until proven otherwise. And for it to be proven otherwise, it has to be through something that is clear-cut, sarih, 
It can't be based on suspicion. It can't be based on conjecture. It has to be based on clear standards of Sharia that this person, although they have a Muslim name and they claim to be Muslim, they have done this or that or said this or that thing, which is kufr bawah, kufr sarir, something that clearly expels them from the fold of Islam. And if that's clear to you through clear-cut evidence, then of course you don't pray janazah over them. If it's not clear-cut to others, you either make them aware or they don't ever find out. They're dealing with them, that person, uh, on the basis of them being masul al-hal. They don't know, but you know, right? So there's no, there's no list of munafiqun that we're getting that comes from a divine source that we can use to sort who we pray janazah over and, th- and who we don't. We only have the standards of sharia, the judge bar. What's that? And, and what, in, in, like on the, like you mentioned, doing the while they're alone. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Some people may get overcome by their desires and may do sins. Absolutely. And, and just to reiterate what we said in the beginning, this list, is it possible? Uh, there's, a, there's, maybe, there's maybe three or four things in the list that a Muslim cannot do. Mocking the Quran, istihzab al-deen, these things. But most of the things in this list, is it possible for us to be guilty of? Absolutely. Does that mean that we're munafiqun? It means that if we do that thing, we have a khasla or an amal, nifaq amali. It doesn't mean you have nifaq itiqadi, the nifaq of the actual munafiqun. And you, just, you make tawbah. You make tawbah and realize that all of these things are removed through the process of tazkiyah. What are you seeking? What are you trying to get? You're trying to get what the munafiqun are lacking entirely, which is congruence. Congruence, what is that again? That is mutabaqah. The inward and the outward are congruent. They match each other. So if you are sinning privately, but being pious publicly, there's a lack of congruence there. To, rem- to get rid of that incongruence, to have congruence, you want to be pious privately and pious publicly. You don't become congruent here by being sinful publicly and privately. You don't want to go that way. That is congruence, but not the kind we're looking for. Uh, the same thing for all these other qualities. They, they, in, they point to a lack of congruence. So sincerity, one of the ways it's built, uh, the ulama say, is to do things privately, uh, good actions, good, you know, salat and dhikr, ibadah, do things privately more uh, in, in quantity and more in quality privately than you would publicly to train yourself in ikhlas. And once Allah gives you that ikhlas, which is something you're not going to witness within yourself, meaning you're not going to reach this stage where MashaAllah. And a Rajulun Mukhlis. Because if you say that's a proof that they need more ikhlas. Because you're not going to witness it like that. But the idea is you get to congruence. And once you have some congruence there, where the where actually is the private is better than the public. The public is good, but private's better. Then it's no longer about public and private. You're just with Allah wherever you are, right? And ta'budullah and katara, wherever you are. You're not the pious Muslim in the masjid only, and then when you're at work, you're qarun, and you're the pious Muslim, you know, when you're here and there with friends, but then at home you're Fir'aun with the wife and the kids or whatever. There's congruence. That is the key. And that's the, you know, if you have a... In this answer, if you have a, a field that's full of weeds, you have two approaches to get rid of the weeds. You could go and, and yank up each weed one by one. You know, you're bending over and you just yank it out from the roots one by one. It's going to take you a while, right? And you're using some muscles there and you're bending over to get it up. 
That's one way to get rid of the weeds. The other way is to just pour gasoline over the whole field and light a single match and watch it all burn. And guess what? All the weeds are gone. Right? So that's ikhlas. Sincerity helps to create that congruence, which gets rid of a lot of these qualities. It's kind of like the, the match in the gasoline to the diseases of the heart versus just trying to deal with this one, just trying to deal with that one. You deal with them in a universal way. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen.